Hi, I'm Simone Halpin, the Executive Director of Naomi's House. And since last December, when we partnered with Serve the World and Chapel Street, we have been hard at work building The Gathering Place, the only day program for victims of sexual exploitation in the area. It was in January of 2020 that we felt the Lord was calling us to consider the gathering place. We knew that nothing like this existed in our county. So we took the step of faith, we started praying, started asking God, what would this look like? What do women need? What are the resources that we have that we can put together in order to provide a day program that gives more women the opportunity to find hope and healing? This is a place where we can serve up to 40 women a year four times the number of women we've been able to serve in residential. And we are thrilled to see women begin to take advantage of this beautiful space and the services that we can provide educationally, vocationally, therapeutically, so that they can begin again. Hi, I'm Amanda Bagnall. I'm the clinical director of day program services here with Naomi's House. When we had the opportunity to expand services at the gathering place to reach more women, <laughs> I got really excited about what that could look like for our community and for the women that we serve. We have a young woman who's traveling all the way from Chicago on public transportation to receive services here at the Gathering Place. Because we are one of the only day program services that provides this type of care to women who've been exploited, she finds it worth her time to come out here three days a week, travel two hours just to meet with our case managers, do the day program, and receive therapeutic services. God knew and he saw what our needs were and he called up the church to meet those needs. And not only did you raise $200,000 to equip us to close on this space, but you went above and beyond. And through that partnership, we were able to cover all the expenses of the renovation. So we're sitting here today in the most beautiful space, welcoming space, and we're starting to fill it already with women who need to hear that there is hope for their future, that there is healing for their trauma, and that together with this community, with the church, with our volunteers, with our staff, we will walk alongside of them and hope for them that their lives can look different and that they can heal from their commercial sexual exploitation. Well, praise God for that. Last year, that was this Advent season last year. Um, if you're new to Chapel Street Church, we pick up uh, Serve the World Partner. Serve the World is a way we talk about making a difference outside of our walls, in our community, uh, in our state, country, and around the world. And so whenever you give to Serve the World, it goes to support ministries like Naomi's House. But specifically, every Advent season, we pick a Serve the World Partner to pray for, to tell their story, and to financially bless uh, with a project that, that would help them do something they couldn't do otherwise. As you heard, Naomi's House last year, their plan was to build a day center. They didn't have one, didn't exist. Uh, to quadruple the, their capacity to help women who are finding freedom and healing that Christ brings from what they've experienced. And the goal was to raise $200,000, which was a big goal. And you, over the course of the four weeks of Advent, gave $300,000 plus. And so just want to say praise God and thank you to all of you for your generosity. Um, so we want to look back for a minute and celebrate what God did and then look forward. So next week, we're going to tell you the, begin to tell you the story of this year's Advent partner. I'm not going to tell you now. You have to come back next week to find out who the partner is. But, but just, just to, for a minute, just say, it's, as, as one of your pastors, just let me tell you, it's a fun thing, an exciting thing, and, a, and a thing that gives me great joy. And I hope you feel it as well to be part of something like this. That we collectively get to come together, pray for, and give toward, and see God do something that couldn't happen otherwise. 
So thank you again. We're looking forward to what he'll do this Advent season uh, through, through his provision and your generosity. Let's pray together as we come to his word. Lord Jesus, we bow now and confess that uh, we need to hear from you. We hear from all kinds of other people and messages and in our lives, and we get distracted sometimes, discouraged even. And so we're asking you to speak to us through your word. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. I, I've noticed that, um, I noticed something about you and you, where you sit, by the way. I don't know if you, one of the interesting things about being up here is I, I see where all of you sit. Some of you sit in the exact same spot every week, and I can see it, you know, and it's funny to me. Uh, those of you that get here early so you can sit in the back row, we call you the back row Baptists. You want to be, you want to have quick access to the exit in case it goes south in the sermon, you want to get out quick, I, I get that. I, that's where I would be if I wasn't up here, I understand, right? But seating in general is a funny thing in our culture, right? It's a stressful thing. When you come to, uh, like, the lunchroom, when you're a kid, right, where are you going to sit? Who are you going to sit with? That, that matters. It means something. There's some, uh, some significance uh, attached to that. Or if you ever fly southwest, it's very stressful. You get your number and your, and your letter, and people get very irritated. Like, you're A7, I'm A6, get right behind me, because, you know, because you got to get on and get your seat, get the best seats, you know. Uh, it, riding shotgun when you're a kid, calling shotgun, you know, it's a big deal. The rules about if the outside the house was the garage count. I remember these things when I was a kid, right? You go to a wedding reception, right? Where you're seated, you go to the little table, you get your card with your number, you look around, oh, I guess this is where we, how we rank in this family, you know. You sit wherever they tell you, you know. Maybe you want to be near the head table, maybe you want to be far away, depending on your relationship to the family. My wife and I went to see um, Northwestern play Purdue at Wrigley Field yesterday. We had decent seats, but the goalpost was in our way. My daughter and my niece had better seats, and so we waited until half after halftime when we go down where the cool people sat in the better seats, you know. Seating says something about our status, our relationship to, to the people that we're with, but about our sense of security. And, and, and really, this question of seating is, is, I'm joking around, but it's at the heart of what we're going to talk about here. The question of where you sit and where you rank and what your status is, is at the heart of this story we're going to examine from Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 10. It's in our series called Following the King, where James and John, two of the 12, have a question about where they're going to sit in the kingdom and what that means. And Jesus is going to, well, redefine the seating chart for them and for us. So let's look at Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. <laughs> and he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Okay, let's just admit right out front that the request of James and John is ridiculous. Isn't it? 
It's ridiculous. It's problematic in its content, which we'll get to, but it's also problematic in its timing. They have a terrible sense of timing. For example, uh, if you have your Mark journals or your Bibles, this won't be on the screen. Open to Mark 10. Look at verses 32 through 34. This is what happens right before the account we just read. They're on the road going up to Jerusalem. This is verse 32. Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to, what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John go, Yeah, 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 but where are we going to sit? Like, what, what are they... Are they not listening? This is the third time in three chapters Jesus specifically predicts and describes the way he's going to be betrayed, suffer, and die. In chapter 8, he says it when Peter confesses him as Christ. And then he talks about his death, and Peter says, don't talk that way, Jesus. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. In chapter 9, the disciples are having their familiar argument. Excuse me. It's very emotional. They're having their argument about uh, who's going to be greatest, which they always talked about. And then in chapter 10 here, they're asking this question about where they're going to sit. Every time Jesus specifically says, I'm going to suffer and die, they completely miss the point. Which, in many ways, is is like us. In verse 33, Jesus says, we're going up to Jerusalem. This, This marks a clear turning point in Mark's gospel. So, if you've been tracking along, Jesus has spent most of his time in the northern part of Israel, in Galilee. Capernaum, uh, in in Nazareth, in the towns uh, in in that region, around the Sea of Galilee. He's turned south and he's headed toward Jerusalem. He specifically says, we're going up to Jerusalem and I will be betrayed. He's made a physical turn, but also a spiritual turn. Luke 9, verse 51 says, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, meaning there's a determination in his soul. In, in, In terms of the chronology, we're less than a month before his death and resurrection. So there's weeks left in his earthly life. He knows that. They don't know that. He has said, we're going to Jerusalem, and this is going to happen. And they don't understand it all. And they ask this question about their status. The first point, the following the king is about submission over status. We're going to make three observations about what, what following the king is, and then one source by which we can. The first observation is following the king is about submission over status. This is the common discussion the disciples are having. Who's the greatest? And if you think about it, it it's not that surprising. If, you're, if you've given up everything to follow this man, and your life is with Jesus, and you're with him 24-7, and you know he's going to be king, you know he's going to take the throne, and you have your own conception of what that's going to be, it'd be a natural thing to talk about, wouldn't it? Like, what's it going to be like? What are our cabinet positions going to be when he takes power? Like, where are you going to rank? Where am I going to rank? What are we going to do? Who's going to have the authority? Have you seen where Herod lives? It's a pretty cool palace. I bet Jesus is going to be better. Where do you think we'll have rooms? Where do you think it'll, I'm sure they talk about all this sort of thing. What's it going to be like? Maybe James and John thought, look, we got an inside track here. We, we're like the inner circle. We were at the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter. No, the, other, the other nine weren't there. Uh, we were also inside the room when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from, from the dead. We're like the inner circle. So if he's going to give anybody top positions, it's going to be us, because those fra- that phrase, sit at your right and at your left, are, are euphemisms for positions of power and status in the kingdom. Maybe they're thinking he's going he's to dole out those positions on a first-come, first-served basis. So let's get our request in early. 
Matthew tells us that their mom actually asked the question. Think about that. I'm, I'm, too, I'm too chicken to ask Jesus. Mommy, you do it, right? They're thinking somebody's got to sit there. Why not us? So they ask this question. Look at verses 35 and 38 once more. And James and John and the sons of Zebedee came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us. Whoops, let's go back one slide. That's my fault. Go back one or forward one. There we go. Aha. We want you to, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That, that's, think about that. When my son Ben was, he's 21 now, he's a little guy, he used to say, Dad, you promise? Dad, you promise? Promise what? Just promise, Dad. Right? I'm not telling you until you promise, in other words. I'll let you know what I want to ask you after I get you to guarantee it's going to happen. It's a little, it reads like that, doesn't it? Do whatever we ask. And Jesus is so gracious. He doesn't say, you idiots. He says, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? That's a fascinating question that Jesus asked them. He knows exactly what's going on in their minds and hearts. And yet he says, I want you to say it. What do you want? What if Jesus looked you in the eye and asked you, what do you want me to do for you? How would you answer that? What would you say if Jesus said to you, tell me what you want. What do you want me to do? I think our answer, like theirs, would reveal something about our hearts, about where we really are our level of understanding, our expectations about what the kingdom means for me. Because what they say, and this is Jesus' point, exposes their misunderstanding. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. <laughs> There's an understatement. You don't know what you're talking about. Are you able to drink the cup or be baptized? We'll talk about those phrases in a minute. What's he talking about there? The way they ask is very childish, but Jesus is so patient with them. What do you want me to do for you? And the request reveals something about their expectation. St. Augustine said, why seek the kingdom of God if you do not seek the way into it? I mean, the way into the kingdom of God is through self-sacrifice and submission. So why talk about the kingdom if you're not willing to do that? I think we, like the disciples, have an astounding capacity to hear what we want to hear. Jesus had talked about his kingdom many times. Never once did he talk about military, political, or economic kingdom. But that's what they heard. That's what they wanted to hear. That's what they expected. And I think we have a tremendous capacity not only to hear what we want to hear, but to not hear what God is actually saying to us, myself included. We've all got our filters through which we hear the message and think it means what we want it to mean. What are your, what are your expectations? What are your secret ambitions? Ambition itself isn't necessarily a sinful or wrong thing. It's the object of our ambition. Jesus says, following me, life in my kingdom, is about submission, laying those things down. You don't know what you're asking. And that's still true today, isn't it? We don't know what we're talking about too often. C.S. Lewis in his book, Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer, says, says this. He says, I shudder to think where I would be now if God had answered all the silly prayers I prayed in my life. <laughs> isn't that true? 
If God had said yes to all the things that you asked for, which would not have been good for you, and you see that now, but you thought you needed or wanted, we don't know what we're asking. Notice what Jesus says next. He asks a question. Can you drink the cup or be baptized with the baptism? What's he talking about? Well, in case you're new to this reading the Bible, or he's not talking about the, the Lord's Supper. That comes later. Nor is he talking about water baptism. He was baptized in the Jordan River. John baptized in repentance. Baptism comes later in the New Testament after, in the, after the ascension and the Holy Spirit comes. There's a bat, believer's baptism. That's not what he's talking about. Baptism means immersion in this context. It's a metaphor for full immersion into a kind of life. You're going to be fully immersed in the life that I'm calling you to live. And that life that you're going to be immersed in is marked by suffering, sacrifice, submission, and pain. You want that? The cup in the Old Testament was often a metaphor for God's blessing or his judgment and wrath. Either blessing or suffering. For example, Psalm 23, right? The David prays, my cup overflows. But Jeremiah 49 is the cup of God's judgment on the nations. Or Isaiah 51, his cup of wrath poured out on Israel's disobedience. And in Matthew 26, Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, prays, Father, let this what? Cup pass from me. What cup? Specifically the cross that's coming, that he knows is coming, drinking the, the, the judgment of God for our sin. So in this context, when Jesus says to, the, to James and John, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink, what's he mean? His death. And the presumed answer is, no, you can't do that. There's only one who dies for the sin of the world. They don't know what they're talking about, is his point. They're asking about status, position, security, and Jesus is saying to them something different. This is the second point. Following Jesus is about sacrifice over security. Submission over status and sacrifice over security. They're asking about positions of status and security in the kingdom, and Jesus is showing them that his kingdom operates on an entirely different value system. Let's look at verses 39 through 40 once more. And they said to him, we are able. They're on a roll here with saying ridiculous things, right? <laughs> yeah, we could do that. We don't know what it means, but sure, sure, bring it on. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. That's interesting. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So they don't know what they're talking about, and Jesus says so. They say we're able, almost arrogant and ridiculous as their first request. But ironically, they're kind of right. So while they will not die on the cross for the sins of the world, that's Jesus' cup to drink, they will suffer. They will experience sacrifice in following him. James will be the first of the disciples to die. In Acts chapter 12, we find out that he's beheaded by Herod Agrippa. He's the first of the disciples to be martyred. John will be the last to die, exiled on the island of Patmos for most of his life and then released and dies. Only one of the 12 not to die a violent martyr's death. They want to be on the right and left, and Jesus is saying, effectively, you're going to be the first and last to die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, uh, The Cost of Discipleship, says, when Christ calls a man or woman, he bids them come and die. I'm thinking about this. I don't know in our culture that the call to follow the king, as it's outlined in the Gospels, would make a very good like, advertisement today. Can you imagine like a social media post? Wanted, individuals willing to die to self, work long hours with no pay, 
Sacrifice and service to others, expect opposition and ridicule by the general public, persecution and death likely, required to submit and trust the management in all circumstances. Right? <laughs> Who's in? Sign me up! We chuckle at that, and I do too, but the truth is these, these 12 men who give given their life to following Jesus don't understand what they're in for. Do we? Do I? Do you? If you're serious about following Jesus? Now when Jesus says those are not mine to grant, he doesn't mean he doesn't have the knowledge or authority. He's saying that's already been established and prepared ahead of time. Your job is to submit to me. In other words, the question you're asking, it means you're out of step with the very kingdom you say you want to be part of. This brings us to the last of the three things that following the king is about service over self. So submission over status, sacrifice over security, and service over self. I was writing these three things down, trying to alliterate them, because I think that's cool. Uh, And then I was, on my note page, just started thinking about this. And I I wrote this down in my own journal. Maybe you can do the same thing. I wrote down these, these words as they exist. Submission on one side. Sacrifice. Service. And if you just take the other column, oops, status, what did I say before? Security and self. Which which column better represents the condition of your heart? In fact, if you're a note taker or a journaler, maybe this would be a good exercise for you to do this week in your own journal. If you just, I want to be a person who's characterized by, sta- by, by sec- submission, sacrifice, and service. That's how I want my life to be. I really do want that. But if I'm honest, if those who know me best are honest, they would say too often, my life's about st- my status, security, comfort, and myself. This is just a, I think it's a great evaluative tool just to think about, okay, I say I want to follow Jesus. What does it look like? What does my heart, my thoughts, my life look like? Let's look at verses 41 to 44 once more. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones... Exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. The ten are indignant. Why are they mad with James and John? You think they're mad because they look at James and John, you, you guys are not getting it. Jesus told you that you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. You're asking questions that betray the very kingdom we're supposed to be a part of. You're so selfish, guys. Why don't you lay yourselves down like the rest of us ten and follow the king? Is that what they're mad about? No. You know why they're mad? Uh, They're mad because those guys called shotgun first. That's why they're mad. They're mad because those guys got their request in first. They beat them to the punch. 
They're mad because they might miss out. They're caught up in the same misunderstanding. They're upset because James and John had the audacity to ask what they wanted to ask. Aren't they just like us? Competitive, jockeying for position, worried about themselves. And what I love about this is that this phrase right here. And Jesus called them to him. Think about that for just a minute. There's our weeks left in his earthly life. They're still misunderstanding the very nature of who he is and what he came to do. And he calls them, boys, come here, boys. You, we have to understand this. You've got to get this if you're going to follow me. You're about to see me suffer and die. And it's going to threaten to undo you. But it's the very heart of what my kingdom means. Let me explain. And how does he explain? To explain, he draws a contrast between what happens in the world and what happens in God's kingdom. He, he specifically compares. He says, you know what it's like out there. You know what the leaders and rulers of the Gentiles. The Gentiles is just the Greek word ethne. It means nations. In other words, anybody who's not a Jew. You know the people outside in the world, how they operate. You know how the Romans operate, how the Herodian dynasty operates, how the Greeks operated, the Persians, the Babylonians before them. You know how this whole world works. People in authority use their authority to keep others under their thumb and down. They exploit them. They abuse them. They prop themselves up by, because of them. And of course, in our governmental system with elected officials, it doesn't work that way. Our officials always serve the people and serve as selfless representatives. But in the ancient world, it wasn't like that. They were, very, they were corrupt and abusive with their power. So it's hard for us to relate, I know. No, he's saying this is how it always goes in the world. It's how it always goes. It shall not be so among you. It's supposed to be different in my kingdom. If I'm honest, it has been so among us. Historically, and in contemporary culture, too often, it has been so. Too often, people who claim to represent Jesus in positions of authority inside the church have operated on the abusive power structures of the world. So not only should we reject the way leaders in the world operate, we should repent of the way sometimes leaders in the church have operated. Maybe you've been a part of a church like that. Maybe you, look, maybe you have friends or your own heart, you looked out at the, and thought, this is a, I hear this all the time, the church, Christian history is no different. Just look at the corruption, all the evil done in the name of God. I've been reading this book lately by a man named John Dixon. He's an Australian church historian and theologian. The book's called Bullies and Saints, an honest look at Christian history, the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's been really helpful to me. He's a deep, strong believer, and he believes in the church and in the message of the gospel, but he's willing to be honest about the times when we've gotten this wrong. And the introduction, he has a beautiful analogy. He says that he was trying to learn to play the cello. He loves cello music, and he loved Bach's cello suites, one of the great pieces ever written for cello. And he said, so he was trying to learn to play it. And here's what he writes. He says, disregarding Christianity on the basis of poor performance of the church is a bit like dismissing Johann Sebastian Bach after hearing me attempt cello suites. We know how to distinguish between the composition and the performance. Jesus wrote a beautiful composition, a glorious, perfect composition. Christians have not always performed it very well. Sometimes we have been badly out of tune. Occasionally, we've played something entirely different. And when people return to the original, the truth is that Christ 
often makes Christians look bad. I think he's exactly right. Jesus is saying to his disciples, these 12 men through whom this movement's going to begin, which we're a part of, it's not supposed to be this way among you. Your lives are to be marked by selflessness, by sacrifice, by submission, and by service to others. That's what God thinks is great. Great ones in Greek means those in authority, those with influence. Who are the great ones in our culture? We, we have whole shows devoted to this, right? Who's the greatest of all time? Who's the GOAT? Who's the greatest NBA basketball player of all time? Is it his, is it his Aaroness, MJ, or is it King James? This, by the way, if you're confused, I can sell this right now for you. It's not a debate, right? Who's the, what's the greatest NFL team in history? This also is not up for debate. 1985 Chicago Bears, in case you're confused, right? Last, last week, last hour, guy yelled Patriots in the front row, but we dealt with him. Right? <laughs> we debate these things, right? Success, achievement, power, you know, we, we, that's what great means. Jesus turned the whole thing on its head. And you know, I think about this. I think some, we, we, we read, I read, I listen to podcasts, I read books, I look at bestsellers, I listen to sermons of, of great preachers around the country, and you do the same thing, hopefully. I wonder when we get to heaven, if the great people were people you've never heard of, you, people that labored in obscurity, faithfully submitted to Christ, who no one ever knew their name, but they're heroes in God's eyes. They gave their lives away. Jesus says, you want to be great, James and John? That's what you're after? I'll tell you exactly how. Submit to me. Sacrifice your lives. Serve other people. And stop worrying about what seat you're in. And you'll be great. Just a couple of questions. Actually, let me read something else to you. We got time. Because, you know, well, the bears are playing, but we got time. <laughs> this is an excerpt from the same book. Uh, Ignatius of Antioch, one of the early uh, church leaders, he was, in about 100 AD, he was arrested, Romans persecuting Christians, and taken uh, from Antioch to Rome to be executed for his faith. On the way, they allowed him to write letters to the churches that he supported. Seven of those letters survive. So he knows he's going to his death, and he's writing letters to the church in a hundred years after the death of Christ. Here's what he writes to a church in Ephesus. Pray continually for the rest of humankind. Pray also for my captors as well, that they may find God, for there is in them yet hope, the hope of repentance. Therefore, allow them to be instructed by you, by your lives, at least by your deeds, if not your words. In response to their anger, be gentle. In response to their boasts, be humble. In response to their slander, offer prayers. In response to their errors, be steadfast in the faith. In response to their cruelty, be kind. Do not be eager to imitate them, brothers and sisters. Let us show by our forbearance that we are brothers and sisters in the Lord, and let us be eager to be imitators of Christ. Marching to his death, he writes this. By the way, this would be a good metric for how we engage in social media. I was just thinking about this. In response to their anger, be gentle. In response to their boasts, be humble. In response to their slander, offer prayer. In response to their errors, be steadfast. In response to cruelty, be kind. Dixon says in his book, sometimes the, the tune is played really well. Sometimes, but we go back to the composition and Jesus says, this is how it's supposed to be in my kingdom. A couple questions for you if you're serious about being great in the kingdom of God. 
How, how much mental energy do you spend thinking about serving other people? I, I don't mean coming in here and doing a, like your service at the church in a program, though that's wonderful. I mean like in your daily life, how much do you think about how could I serve my spouse? How could I serve my brother or sister? How could I serve my neighbor? What do they need? And to serve them, you'd have to know what they need, which means you have to think about them. The whole point is how much time do you spend thinking about other people and their needs rather than your own? Do you get excited about an opportunity to serve? Or do you feel like, oh, I probably should do this? So Jesus says, following the king, following me, is about submission over status, sacrifice, right, over security, and service over self. But that feels like, I don't know about you, that feels like kind of an impossible standard. Who could live that way? Who could measure up? This is the last point. Following the king is possible because of the king's ransom. This whole interchange between Jesus and the disciples would be like this impossible standard you can't measure up to if not for the last verse. Look at verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus is saying to them, not just do follow me as an example. He doesn't just say, serve others as I have served others. He says, serve others as I am served you. And how has he served you? Fundamentally, by giving himself for you as a ransom for your life. The God of the universe gave himself for you. The Greek word there, lutron, is the word ransom. It means freedom price. It literally refers to purchasing slaves. And that's the heart of the gospel. We are slaves to sin. We are captive. And Jesus has set you free. But he did it at great cost. There's a price to be paid. So God doesn't just wink at sin, sweep it under the rug, pretend it didn't happen, and go, okay, let's, let's move on, do better now. He pays the price which you could not pay. This idea of ransom is part of this beautiful thing we call the, the atonement, what happened at the cross. Let me just walk you through a couple of passages from the Old and New Testaments where this rounds this out for us. I think you need, this simple sentence Jesus says here is so crucial for you to understand if you're going to really follow the king. What he did, has done for you. Psalm 49. Truly no man can ransom another or give, God, give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. You cannot afford it. You can't pay for yourself or someone else. It's too high a cost. It would undo, it would destroy you. Jeremiah 31, verse 11. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob. Jacob gets his name changed to Israel. Israel, the people of God. He's saying, God has done what you could not do, people of God. He's ransomed you and has redeemed him from the hands too strong for him. What was too strong and too expensive for you, God has done. How's he done that? We'll go to 1 Peter in the New Testament. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So you cannot ransom yourself. God has done it. How has he done it? With the precious blood of Jesus. And then go to 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6. For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So once again, 
You can't ransom yourself or anybody else. God has done it. How has he done it? Through the blood of Jesus. And he's your mediator. He's your access. He's the the channel through which you come to God. And he's the one who enables you now to live this life of submission and sacrifice and service. And if you're wondering where all this goes, Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 through 10. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. By your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. What was it James and John wanted to do? Reign. Kingdom positions of power and status and influence. And Jesus says, you'll have them. You will have them, but not the way you think. You know how you have them? You know how those positions come to you, people of God? Through submission to me, through the sacrifice of your life and your will and your desires, through service of others. That's greatness. And if that feels impossible to you, Jesus says, it is. But I have done it for you. I have ransomed you. Listen to how Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book, The Quiet Heart, comments on this idea, and we'll close. Consider, brethren, what it meant for him to do this for us. I go, he says. Where is he going? He's going to the Garden of Gethsemane to sweat drops of blood. Where is he going? He is going to be arrested, to be tried in court, to be mocked and jeered and laughed at. He is going to be spat upon, to have his holy body scourged. He's going to have a crown of thorns placed upon his head. They will take him and drive nails into his hands and feet. That is where he's going. He's going to endure mockery and the spitting and the jeering of the mob. He is going to die. He who is the eternal Son of God, through whom the world has been made and through whom all things consist, he is going deliberately to all that because that is the only way whereby the door and the gate of heaven can be opened for us and our lives redeemed. Beloved friend, have you realized that the Lord Jesus Christ has done that for you? If you see it, if you believe it, You will agree with the Apostle Paul when he says that you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Do you think of your life that way? We sang it. Anton reminded us, yet not I. The life I live, it's not mine. I act like it is. We act like it belongs to us, but it doesn't. For we have been ransomed by the king. And we give our lives back to him in return. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just pause and and give you praise and glory. And in a season of thanksgiving, we don't know the words to say thank you for what you have done. How can we thank you? How can we repay you for paying the price for our freedom, for our liberation? Forgive us for thinking and acting like our lives belong to us. Forgive me for that. Forgive us when we operate on the world's standard of power. Forgive me for when I act like the position you've placed me in exists to serve me. Help us by your grace and your spirit to be the kind of people that you called James and John and the Twelve long ago, and you call us now to be people in joyful submission, self-sacrificing, living lives of service to others, and ultimately to you. We thank you that that is who you are, Jesus, our Redeemer and our King. Amen.